Over the past few weeks, we've, uh, we've looked at the sins that we tolerate, and we've rightly been confronted by our own sin, I hope, in the areas that we might think are not that big a deal, right? Things like anxiety, or a lack of contentment, or ingratitude, or of course, we looked at ungodliness two weeks ago. Now, why in the world would we spend so much time teaching about these sins that don't really matter? Ah, you got it. Because they do, right? They do matter. See, friends, to get to the good news of the gospel and to appreciate the good news of the gospel, I must first deal with the bad news about me and you as well. And that bad news is that I'm a sinner who is in desperate need of a savior. See, God has a standard, and that standard is perfection. And I don't meet that standard. I don't know you very well. I know some of you better than others, but I know myself, and I don't meet that standard. Because in my heart, I'm a rebel. God draws a line, and I desire to step over it. I transgress. That's the best definition of what sin is. Transgression, transgression of the law of God. That's what we do. God says, David, here's your boundary. Be grateful. Be content. Pursue godliness. Don't be anxious, David. And I say back to him, no, I don't want to do those things. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner by birth, and I'm a sinner by choice. Scripture teaches us that, that our depravity is something that we are both born with and we happily participate in. And there are consequences for my rebellion, death, judgment, and eternity in a very real place called hell. It's quite a predicament. But you know what the good news is? The good news is, is that a rescue plan has always been in place. Amen? In fact, the rescue plan is why God created humanity. So that he might redeem some, not all, but some, a particular people, back to himself for his glory and for their good. And that rescue comes by God offering himself in our place. See, Jesus, having been perfectly obedient to the law, never having sinned, he is the perfect substitute and savior for a sinner like me and a sinner like you. And in Jesus Christ, we no longer get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. As I turn from my sin and I trust in the only provision that can save, the provision of Jesus himself, I don't find condemnation and judgment and in eternity in hell. What I find is mercy and grace and eternal life because of Christ. But even so, you would agree with me, I hope, that even as saved people, we still wrestle daily with our own sin. Or am I all alone in that? No, I didn't think so. 
That's why we're instructed by Colossians 3 to kill sin daily in our lives. But, but for some sins, sadly, it's easier to tolerate those sins in our own lives. They are respectable sins, you might say. For example, last Wednesday night, Pastor Russell spoke about anxiety. If you were here, you remember that. Anxiety is one of the sins of the mind. And the funny thing is that Jesus made it super clear that worry is a sin. Yet some of us have perfected worry into an art form, haven't we? So it's a respectable sin in our mind. Oh, I'm just a worrier. I'm just, by nature, I'm a worrier. See, this series is not comprehensive by any means. And so, as was mentioned before, I will commend to you Jerry Bridges' book, uh, Respectable Sins. In fact, I would commend any book to you by Jerry Bridges. Uh, his most famous book is, of course, The Pursuit of Holiness. But a book that I love in particular, my wife and I read it together a couple years ago, is Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. It's a fantastic biblical exploration of God's sovereignty. So now my assignment tonight is to deal one of the sins of the heart, and it's a biggie. And you've already talked about it. It's pride. You attempted to give a definition for it and maybe even give some examples around your table tonight. And I think I know what some of you were thinking when you realized what we were talking about tonight. Some of you immediately thought, dear Lord, why did I come? <laughs> and some of you immediately thought, praise God, my spouse has come. <laughs> right? I do find it kind of interesting that out of all the different teachers, I have been given the sin of pride tonight. And that's because actually I asked for it. I'm really looking forward to sharing with you how well I've conquered this in my own life. <laughs> and my teaching is going to be really, really good tonight too. God forgive me. All right, so let's dive into the sin of pride, shall we? Genesis chapter 3, first couple of verses we're going to be looking at together. I don't have an outline tonight. We're just going to walk through the text and make observations about the sin of pride as we do. The great reformer Martin Luther noted that pride is the sin underneath all other sins. He said, pride, quote, is the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and that we must take matters into our own hands. Anybody in here guilty of that besides me? Those that didn't raise your hands, you're too prideful to do so. <laughs> Luther's right. And he knew it because he too struggled with pride. Now, if you know your Bible fairly well, you're probably familiar with the context of Genesis chapter 3. We are in the Garden of Eden here. And in the garden, God has already provided everything that Adam and Eve could ever want. He walks with them on a daily basis. And he provides for them everything that they would need. So up to this point, they viewed God as good, as only good. 
He gave them everything, except he had one prohibition. There was a command for them not to eat from one specific tree in the garden. The fruits of all the other trees in the garden were fair game, permissible, freedom provided by God, but one tree was not. And that was by God's decree. So it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. Now, if you're a parent raising kids in your homes and you get frustrated that your kids won't obey, take heart. Remember that God, as the perfect parent, only had one rule and his children still disobeyed. I think we can be encouraged by that. God's commands are never arbitrary and this one in the garden wasn't arbitrary either. His standard never is. He told them not to eat from a particular tree because death would be the result of their disobedience. But their pride gets the best of them. Let's look and see how that unfolds in Genesis chapter 3. I hope you're there by now. You've got your Bible out or your device. We're going to read 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, in my Bible, don't know about yours, but in my Bible, this passage is barely on page three. We're on page three of the Bible, and sin has finally entered the picture. Didn't take long. Friends, the Bible has a built-in, sovereignly divine, intentional story arc, if you will. And that story arc is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I want you to think about those four components. Creation, that's what Genesis 1 and 2 are all about. The fall, we're going to be looking at that today, right here in Genesis 3. Redemption. Even though there's a promise of redemption in Genesis chapter 3, the history of redemption really starts in Genesis chapter 4 and goes all the way through the Bible to Revelation 3. And then ultimately, restoration. That begins in Revelation 4 and goes through the end of our Bibles. As we see God restore as his kingdom comes, as another garden with another tree in the new creation comes about. So 
three pages into our Bibles and we're already in the middle of the second major section of the story arc of the entire Bible. And what we see here is the fall of mankind. And as Genesis 3 spotlights humanity's sin here, we see that pride is at the very heart of the first transgression of humanity. Over the years, my wife and I have talked a lot with our boys. We have a 20-year-old and a fixing to turn 18-year-old. We've talked a lot with them about sin, how sin always looks fun. And it looks fun because in reality what sin does is it overpromises and it underdelivers every single time. And as sin overpromises, its appeal is to our pride. Oh yeah, I can handle that. That's what we tell ourselves. I can handle that. See, sin appeals to our pride. Again, the Luther quote about being pride being the sin underneath all other sins. And I believe that's what we see here in Genesis chapter 3, which begins in a very interesting way, doesn't it? Verse 1, take a look at it with me. What does it say? Now the serpent was more crafty. Whoa, hang on, hang on, time out. Who is this? Where did this serpent come from? You get no lead up. It seems like it's way out of place. But we must remember that the Bible is not laid out in chronological order. Because its purpose in being written is not merely history. See, we find out later about the origin of the serpent from two key Old Testament passages. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17, and Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. And in those two Old Testament passages, which we're not going to look at tonight, but I want you to write them down for later study. Those two Old Testament prophets, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as God unfolded the scriptures, what they do is they re review a moment in history that's not specifically covered between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3-1. And that moment is about the origin of this serpent who seems to arrive out of nowhere on the scene in Genesis 3-1. In this respect, think of it this way. Reading Genesis is a bit like missing the first part of a movie. You walk in late, then that bug you bugs me to death. And you've missed two minutes or five minutes and you're what in the world happened? Where are we? How did we get here? But with the Bible, eventually the part you missed is shown in a flashback. If you'd like to think about that that way. And the flashback eventually happens partway through the movie. And those two flashbacks are Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And in those two passages, they refer to real human kings that were living at the time well after Genesis chapter 3. But those two passages are not merely referring to those human kings, but they're also pointing to the one who is behind those two human kings, and that is Satan. 
He's been behind kings for a long time, and he still is. In fact, in Luke 10, 18, Jesus uses Isaiah 14, 12 to describe Satan's fall from heaven, which again, chronologically took place before Genesis 3, 1. Now, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here about this, but this is important because it does inform us about the sin of pride. What we have in those two passages is a description of a beautiful captain of the angelic armies who was not content being under the authority of the sovereign God of the universe. It's Satan. And he believed God was holding out on him. He was so prideful, so full of himself, and thought he was cheated that he mounted a rebellion. He didn't want to play a role in God's story. He wanted the story to be about him. And so he attempted a coup. And if you know the story, did the coup attempt come out successful? No, it didn't. The coup attempt failed. And Satan was cast down to earth sometime before he pops up here in Genesis 3.1. I say all of that because having this context about Satan's own sin of pride in the back of our minds will help us understand his appeal to Adam and Eve in just a bit. Look at what Satan says to Eve in verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, let's deal with the phrase any tree first. Was that a true assertion that Satan was making about any tree? Was it? No, it was not. He was lying to her just like he lies to you and I today. Jesus makes it very clear in John 8, 44, that Satan not only lies, but he is the father of lies. And what was the lie in Genesis 3, 1? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's an interesting lie. Wow, I got ahead of myself. I'm not real sure how that happened, sorry. The lie in Genesis 3.1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan knew that if he wanted Eve to sin, he would need to tempt her to doubt God instead of trusting God. This is his play today. Just as he was convinced, he was convincing her that God is not trustworthy. God was holding out on her. See, what his approach is here is he's trying to chip away at God's authority in her life. And friends, I'll repeat this a couple of times, but again, this is my definition of pride. Pride is swapping out God's authority for my own authority. I don't know how you answered it at your table, but that's how I would have answered the question. It's swapping out God's authority in my life for my own authority in my life. Think about what's at stake in questioning God's authority. What's at stake is his trustworthiness. Do you trust someone who never keeps their word? Do you? Of course you don't, and for good reason, right? 
So the starting point for every temptation is to get us to believe that God cannot be trusted. That's what Satan does here with Eve by appealing to her pride. In the book, Mere Christianity, which is the first book I ever read after becoming a Christian, C.S. Lewis defines pride as the complete anti-God state of mind. The complete anti-God state of mind. Again, saying the same thing. Pride swaps out God's authority for our own authority. What did Eve do in response? Well, let's look at verse 2 together. And I think you'll see it. She says, in answer to his question, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now, hang on right there. Is she right? Yeah, that's a true statement. God gave incredible freedom in the garden to them. In Genesis 2, 8, and 9, there's, there's uh, numerous trees that they can eat from and enjoy, but all they could focus on was the one that they could not have. Again, every parent in the room has, in the room has had that moment uh, in their kids' lives when the toddler is given 10 toys he doesn't want because his sibling has the one toy that he does want, right? Not going to be happy until he gets what he doesn't have. But you and I are no, no different than that today, nor was Eve. Eve responds initially here with a very true statement in verse 2 when she says we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But then she goes on, look at verse 3, to say... But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So the first part of what she said about God said is true. But is the last phrase, neither shall you touch it lest you die? Is that what God says? No, that's not what he said. But this is how our pride operates. Earlier in verse one, Satan in his pride downplayed the word of God. And now here in verse three, Eve in her pride adds to the word of God. And in that moment, she tried to swap out God's authority for her own authority. The sin of pride then for them and for us today is our attempt to be our own God. Because of our pride, what we do is we convince ourselves that God's cramping our style. He, he certainly is not trying to protect me. I know how to protect me. He's just a cosmic killjoy. And in our minds, what we do is we make God more restrictive than he actually is. That's what verse three is all about. Satan pitches that idea to Eve that God is more restrictive than he really is, and she goes right along with it. So what's Satan's response to Eve in verse four? Look at what he says. You will not surely die. See, this is what happens when we entertain the sin of pride in our lives. Satan gets bolder. That's what happens. Because he sees here that Eve might just be willing to 
play ball with him. You know, in Ephesians 4, 27, when the Apostle Paul talks about, he, he cautions us against letting the devil get a foothold in temptation. That's what's happening here in verse 4. Eve's pride is allowing her to entertain this idea and she's made a little crack for the enemy. And so Satan gets bolder and he gets a foothold and he tells her exactly what she wants to hear. Eve, my dear, you've been lied to. God lied to you. That's the lure of every sin, not just pride. And Satan still runs that same playbook today. Ironically, Satan's lie to us is that God has lied to us. That's his lie. Oh yes, David. God has drawn a boundary. He's he set a line. But beyond that line, David, is not death. Beyond that line is real life. So go ahead. Follow your heart. See, it's an appeal to our pride. Pure and simple. Again, what is pride at its core? It's swapping out God's own, God's authority for my own authority. So does Satan give up? No, he does not. He's pretty persistent. Still is now. And I don't blame him. He's got a foothold in Eve at this point. So he continues, look at the beginning of verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. So Satan is dangling this idea right in front of Eve that God wanted her to stay away from that tree, not because she would die, but because she wouldn't truly live. What is that an appeal to, friends? It's an appeal to our pride. Friends, why do you think the month of June is all about pride? It's not about equality. Heterosexual couples that affirm biblical marriage in covenant with each other, they don't get a month for themselves, do, do we? No, it's about swapping out God's authority for our own authority. That's what it's about. Pride is an, an, an assertion of autonomy. It's a, it's a declaration that no one has the right to tell me what to do. No one has the right to tell me who to love. No one has the right to tell me what my identity is. Certainly not the one who created me. No way. And Satan still tells us today what our depraved hearts wants to hear. He still lies to us. And his lies appeal to our pride. He, he lies when he whispers, God has lied to you. He's holding out on you. You deserve better. I think we can all put that one to death, right? You've been at McGregor for a while. What does every sinner deserve? Yeah, hell. And we shouldn't be too hard on Eve. Think about your own life and how pride plays into your choices that you and I make. 
How you and I can doubt God's word. How we wonder if he is holding out on us. See, this whole thing is about stiff-arming the authority of God in our lives. It's the essence of our sin. And when we trespass what God has revealed, we make a clear statement that we think we don't need God anymore. We're just fine without him. And what is that? It's our pride. Augustine put it this way. He says, whenever man aspires to be self-sufficing, he retreats from the one who is truly sufficient for him. Sin is a declaration of self-sufficiency every time we do it. And I hope you see that this passage is not about a piece of fruit. Humanity's first sin was not about eating. <laughs> it's about way more than that. It's about the attempt to exchange places with God as the ultimate authority in our life. And the temptation that happened in the garden is still happening in our hearts today. Theologians call this the fall. Your Bible header above chapter three may even say the fall. But what it is, it's an attempt to rise and become our own God and be our own authority. That's what this is in chapter three. Pride expresses itself here as the creature who wants to be done with the creator. Because, well, we can't trust the creator anymore. And as I mentioned before, pride is a sin of the heart. So you can't see it because it's internal, right? But even so, brothers and sisters, the internal sin of pride will eventually be expressed externally in other sins. That's how it works. And this is what happens in verse 6. In verse 6, the internal sin of pride gets manifested in different external sin when she ate of the fruit. But before we get to that external sin, I want you to look at the run-up to that in verse 6. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Look at what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lie number one, check. And that it was a delight to the eyes, lie number two, check. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, lie number three, check. Eve was deceived and brought all three and bought all three of those lies. And when it says here that it was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, these first two lies, that's the promise of instant pleasure with no consequences. <laughs> now, is that pernicious lie still around today? <laughs> the promise of instant pleasure with no consequences? Is it? Yeah, absolutely it is. And when it says that the tree was, what was, was to be desired to make one wise, that third lie, that's the promise of instant maturity without effort. Is that pernicious lie still around today? You better believe it. And all three of those lies tapped right in to Eve's pride. So what did she do? Stay in verse six, look at it with me. She took of its fruit and what? She ate. 
Now, this is the moment where the internal sin of pride got externally expressed by the disobedience to an explicit command of God. And what was that explicit command of God? Well, just look over on the, the page next to you in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. That's the explicit command that was broken here in Genesis chapter 3, 6. Look at what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's clear about the sin and the consequence. The internal sin of pride gets expressed externally by the disobedience to the explicit command of God in Genesis 2 when Eve took of its fruit and ate it in Genesis chapter 3. Remember the Luther quote, pride is the sin underneath all our sins. See, we won't ever excommunicate somebody here at McGregor for the sin of pride. You know why? Because it's internal. And according to our church constitution, the criteria of sin that would bring about excommunication in a church member is outward, serious, and unrepentant. That outward part is pretty important because the sin has to be observable. But even though pride is internal, the sin of pride eventually gets expressed Externally, let me just give you an example of how that works. When a man has an affair and does not repent but instead divorces his wife, his internal pride has manifested into the external disobedience of the clear command of God. Actually, three off the top of my head. Hebrews 13, 4, keeping the marriage bed pure. 1 Corinthians 6.18, fleeing from sexual temptation. And in Mark 10.9, let no man separate what God has brought together. All of those are explicit commands that he has broken that can lead to excommunication if he does not repent and to return to his wife. But underneath all those external sins is the internal sin of pride. See how that works? His pride probably took hold of him when he first saw that other woman and he said, I can handle this. I deserve this. God doesn't really say this is wrong. Friends, what's internal will eventually be expressed externally. That's the way it works with our sinful nature. And pride is an internal sin that won't stay there. And in Genesis 3, 6, eventually what Eve did is she took of its fruit and ate. Internally driven by pride, breaking an external clear command of God. Did you notice that so far the progression of Eve's temptation here, there's somebody missing, right? 
It sort of begs the question, was Eve alone in her sin? No, it wasn't just her. But it's kind of fascinating that we've gone through all these verses with no mention of the first image bearer that God created, Adam. We don't hear about him until the end of verse 6. Look at it with me where it says, And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. That, friends, is a tragic description of Adam, who was with her. Adam, what are you doing? Uh, I'm with her. Standing by in passive silence. Adam hadn't said a word to this point. He did not act to intervene. He did not act to protect his wife while she was being deceived by Satan. He just stood there. And when given the chance to actually do something, what did he do? How does verse 6 end? He ate. Attaboy. Friends, the failure of biblical manhood is not a new phenomenon. It happened first in the garden. And brothers, male headship in the home spiritually leading our wife and kids. It's not about us asserting our authority like we're Archie Bunker. It's about being the initiator. Someone will lead your family spiritually and God has designed you and I as husbands and fathers to do that. And it doesn't mean we have to be the only one that fulfills every responsibility when it comes to spiritual growth in our family. But what it does mean is it means we get to be the one who initiates it. We get to be the one who uses the word let's a lot. Darling, let's talk about how we will disciple our kids. Let's talk about how we will discipline the children. Let's talk about when we will start family worship. Let's talk about how much we're going to give to the Lord to our local church. Let's talk about when you and I are going to have a date night next Let's talk about when you and I are going to pray together next. Let's talk about how we can best impact our grandkids for Jesus. Let's, let's, let's. Someone is designed to be the initiator in the family. And God has designed us as men to do that. And that's a whole nother message all by itself, but we just can't help but notice Adam's failure here because it's convicting, isn't it, brothers? Me too. See, I believe it's important to see the distinction between Adam's sin and Eve's sin. She was deceived, but he flat out rebelled. He ate, the scripture says. Let me share with you some breaking news. Men and women are different. There you go. Evidently that is revolutionary in the culture in which we live now. But it's true. They're different in a thousand different ways, including how they are tempted and how they sin. 
The Apostle Paul says to his siblings in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, Eve's deception is not the point of this verse. But Paul attests to the fact that she was deceived. Paul also tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14, as he's making the case for male pastors, elders in the church, not females, he says this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That deception is important. Now, Paul's not making a value judgment in this, these two verses between men and women. We're both image bearers of the living God, equal in value. But he's illustrating that men and women are tempted in different ways, and they approach their sin differently. Make no mistake about it, both Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3. He, her first but they both ate of the fruit and thus transgressed God's clear command from Genesis chapter 2. But how they got there was different. You see why Adam and Eve are the perfect representatives for every single sinner that's ever walked the planet? Including you and me. She was deceived and he rebelled just like you and I do today. So if you think given the chance you would have done something different than they did, you're wrong. Remember, God is holy. He does not make a wrong choice. He chooses the elect. He chooses which birds fall out of trees and die every single day. And he chooses which hairs fall from our heads every single day. And he chooses here the most accurate representatives for humanity, and that's Adam and Eve. Out of which, praise God, he will redeem some back to himself for his glory and for their good. And that redemption will come through God's Son, Jesus Christ. But in the beginning, it all began with pride. What is pride? It's swapping out God's authority for our own. Let me ask you this. What's the opposite of pride? Give me an antonym of pride. Humility, humble. I'm hearing it all over the room. That's right. Humility. It should not be a surprise to us then that the proper response to the only thing that can solve our sin problem, the good news of the gospel, is a response of humility. Anybody know what Proverbs 3, 34, James 4, 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5 all say? Anybody know what, that, what those verses all say in tandem? God opposes the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble. See, just as we do time and time again here at McGregor, we're going to take it back to the gospel, to the good news. 
It's the only hope for sinners like you and me. And for those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus by faith, his death on the cross has overcome all their sin, including the sin underneath every sin. That's the sin of pride. 